Hello, I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. And I'm Tim McIntosh. And you are listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader, but not the kind of incurable reader that Ignatius J. Riley is, for better incurable readers. Which, of course, brings me to the little, the, the, the fact, the well-known fact at this point that we are here to discuss a Confederacy of Dunces featuring Ignatius J. Riley and written by John Kennedy Toole. We are here to discuss the end of this particular novel. Another fact that I have a feeling quite a few listeners are pleased about. So we're going to discuss the end of this novel. Next week, of course, we'll do the Q&A. And then after that, we're going to do one episode on Henry Green's Loving. And we're going to do some end of the year podcasts. And then that will be 2021 here on Close Reads. Okay. Before we do that, though, Tim, Heidi, this is the first time in a few weeks that we've had the three of us on together at the same time to discuss this book. I think we should just celebrate that for a moment here. Maybe have a moment of silence for our... <laughs> that would be so awkward for our listeners. <laughs> All right. Well... <laughs> well done. We nailed that. I was a little you nervous. I was a little antsy. I just kept Tim, thinking about Pascal. Tim... <laughs> <laughs> Tim Tim looked very comfortable in that moment of silence, though, didn't he? He did. He went into his like stage director power pause. Tim, how, yeah. how are you? Power, power pause. Power pause. Not to be confused with the power Not with power like pause, Ignatius like P A W S. J Riley's power pause. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Tim, how are you? I'm good. David, how are you? I'm well. Guys, Heidi? this is a sweet moment. You two are together again after a couple of weeks. I know. Yeah. It's been know. since like the first episode on this book. Is it been that long? It has yeah, been. because you guys did the second one, and then Heidi and I did the third I one. I know. I are. see y'all all the time, but maybe the you guys one. are maybe maybe second, united. Yeah. Heidi did claim that she is, um, her phrase was, not the weak link on this podcast. Um, what I said episode. was, I don't know who the weak link is. I'm just saying I've been here at every single podcast. Well, here's the thing, though. If all the podcasts are bad... Then Then I would be the weak link. That's a fair point. That's not wrong. Strong, (laughs) strong reasoning. (laughs) Let's just move on from that, from that, from that moment there. Um, Before we dive into the show, though, I want to ask each of you, what is one uh, Christmas tradition that you have yet to do that you are excited about participating in between now and, and Christmas, which is we're recording on Wednesday, December 15th. This is going to air on the 17th, but between now and 10 days from now, when, Christmas is here. What are you looking forward to uh, celebrating? Tim, you go first. Or, or just, just one tradition. None of the traditions that I'm excited about um, can occur before Christmas Eve. So, like, I went to a lesson in carols at my church in Atlanta on Sunday night, and it was fantastic. It was just wonderful. Um, but kind of between that and Christmas Eve, aside from the arrival of my brother and sister-in-law to Atlanta, I don't have any, yeah, there's nothing going on that I'm really looking forward to. Everything begins Christmas Eve. So what's one thing you're looking forward to on Christmas Eve? Okay. Can I first start by telling you something that I'm going to miss? Um, yeah. My my dad died this year. He died in April and my dad would kind of regularly on Christmas Eve, we'd all gather around as a family and he would read Luke 2, which is not that uncommon, but mm-hmm. what made it additionally special was that my dad would do a on-the-fly translation from his Greek New Testament. He would read the Greek 
and literally translated into English as he read. <laughs> and I was oh, like, I cool. remember the, the first time he did that, I was in my 20s and I thought, oh my gosh, that guy's awesome. Who you wouldn't have appreciated this? it when you were like 14. Yeah, I don't think I would have appreciated it. And maybe he did do it when I was 14. And because I couldn't appreciate it, I don't remember it. But when I was <laughs> yeah. in my 20s, I certainly did appreciate it and remember mm. it. And that's one of those things that's like, you could read Luke too, but you couldn't, you can't just recreate that. Exactly. You know? Yeah. I mean, even if you know Greek, you can't recreate the specific way he translates it or whatever. That's really, that's really cool. Yeah. It was really cool. Hmm. Heidi, what are you looking forward to? Okay. So I have like 50 at the top of my head. So I'm glad to pause so that I could pick one, but I'm like crazy about Christmas traditions. Are you saying you need another uh, pregnant pause here on the podcast? Or a top three, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to just pick one. Okay. Um, So my, uh, on Christmas Eve, Eve, we all watch, we all buy matching Christmas pajamas, which means I do. And the boys complain, but I force them to wear them because they love me. <laughs> um, and so we all wear matching Christmas pajamas and we watch a Muppet Christmas Carol and we have to, everybody has to sing one more sleep till Christmas aloud. And then we make a, um, candy cane pizza so it's like mozzarella cheese and the pepperonis are in rows like candy canes and then we make baby jesus's in main in swaddling clothes which are pigs in a blanket and the analogy does break down once you start eating them but all metaphors fail at some point um and and then lucy makes a christmas cake and decorates it with like a different theme every year I just need to say something right now. The only only normal thing that was just said was, and then Lucy makes a cake. But it's a themed Christmas Everything else was a little bit crazy time. So this- Well, Muppet's Christmas Carol is like- that's you know, a normal-ish that. thing to, to think. Ish. So I'm going to say ish. Yeah. It's the best version of a Christmas Carol. So it's great, A, and B, everything I said is delightful and is going to create lifelong memories and nostalgia in my family, mostly in me, but (laughs) I'm glad you said it. It's all true. Well, and to be fair, Tim, you did just list something that was particular about your dad that you are now going to miss. Right. So maybe... Like as as a, if I had said something like we gather around and have a Christmas turkey. Like who doesn't? Everybody does that, Tim. God bless yeah. us, everyone. Everyone, right? But yeah, my thing was. I'm going to say this. My thing was unique, mm-hmm. not weird. So I am <laughs> prone to sentimentality. That's the thing I'm prone to. What? I know you are. Yeah. So it. I I receive what you're saying. I'm. I'm sticking to my guns, though. It's happening every year, forever, till death do us part. <laughs> I'm just imagining Jack at age 30, like oh, he's 15 you know, and a half. Are you kidding? This right. is like this is his nightmare. This is his nightmare. <laughs> this is his nightmare. Well, then he does get Christmas Eve and Christmas Day out of it. So yep. you know, if you want to get your, if you drawing, want, yeah. Your drone, then I don't know. I'm just you know. then right. you have 
to suffer. I think that's kind of a takeaway about the, kind of like the bah, Christmas season. You, you're a Grinch. That's what's the, happening right now. The, that's kind of a Your takeaway heart about is two sizes too small. <laughs> True. His, his shoes might just be too tight. Though. I know. Jack, Whatever what have you, the reason, what have you learned about shoes. the Christmas spirit that you have to suffer to get good things? <laughs> that you have to suffer to get the payola? That's not. That's true. What you just said about life, Jack. No, it's true help, about life. Does it need to be true about times. the Christmas spirit? Well, I mean, you're a Grinch, so you need a visit from the <laughs> Christmas fairy. So at home, the Christmas fairy. <laughs> so well, I'm confused about how Christmas works now. You need to be punched in the face by Saint Nicholas. You <laughs> solely punched heretics, but now I'm adding you to the list. Also, people that are just grinchy. Yep. <laughs> okay. Well, we are actually here to discuss the Confederacy of Dunces. Speaking of grinchy, well, Tim is being very like Ignatius J. Riley right now. I am. I'm <laughs> kind of getting this in the mood. <laughs> oh my god! So, we come to we come to the end of the book and. This is a book that kind of defies characterization. It defies a lot of genre elements and it beats, marches to the beat of its own strange proverbial drum. But I'm curious to know where each of you stand in terms of the comedy tragedy quotient at the end of this book. Like, to what degree should we read this as when the last? When you close the book at the end, the last word has been read. To what degree should we look at this as a as a tragedy, as a comedy? Like how how do you read the ending? Like what's your mental and emotional state when you come to the end of this book? Heidi, I want to ask you this first because this is your first time reading it, mm-hmm. so it's pure surprise. Tim, this is not your first time, so you're doing some. You know, you had you, your first impression is deep in your subconscious already preparing you for that final that final sentence so Heidi the rambling is over you have to answer the question now um I I think it's you know most of these novels like this kind of take us on a journey right and the novel ends with them he and Myrna beginning a journey uh and um, I'm I'm left dissatisfied, but I think that that's a pretty good ending to this novel to leave you dissatisfied because he has learned nothing and come to no moment of repentance. And so I think it's fitting that his journey is continuing, you know, he's riding off into the sunset with the girl, but it's a creepy girl and it doesn't feel like an escape. Um, I, I think that the ending is fitting because it matches the tone of the novel and leaves us with this idea of him kind of continuing in the same dysfunction. It's an inversion of what we might expect of a satisfying ending, just as everything in the novel has been an inversion of a satisfying hero or a satisfying plot or whatever, right? So he's That's kind of upending or inverting some of these norms that you might expect. And so the hero riding off into the sunset with a girl, that is a that's, you know, that's a cliche, but this is kind of a cliche turned on its head. So I think it so, works. So, so it's consistent with the book we have been given. Exactly. That's what I, yeah. I guess that's what I'm trying to say and stumbling all over myself saying no, it. I'm, I'm just, yeah. I'm, yeah. it wasn't me correcting you. It was more like me clarifying. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that I understood. Yeah. Kim, do you agree with that? No, I see it very differently. I see it. 
I mean, I, I'm satisfied by the ending. I think that the fundamental problem that Ignatius J. Riley has is that he's completely oblivious, mm, willingly or not, to the existence of anyone else's existence in the world, like that they have an inner life like he has an inner life. He always talks about, you know, this person is going to recognize my, you know, my profound and poetic inner life. Um, Yeah. But he doesn't grant that to anybody else. The only person that he seems to be like remotely capable of that with is Myrna. And again, like their whole dynamic is I'm going to fix her and her, her dynamic is I'm going to fix him. But I think below that is this like genuine kind of affection that they have for each other. Like I think they really like each other despite the fact that they're just both just crazy in really different ways. Um, so I found it to be no Ignatius does not go through a moment of repentance, but I felt like this is a glimmer of hope that he is going to maybe deal with like his primary problem, which is comedic narcissism. Do you, do you agree that he has not changed? I think that the book closes at the beginning of a change. Will the, will the change stick? I don't know. But I mean, he genuinely, like he's making, he kisses her like ponytail at the end of it. This is such a non-Ignatius Riley move. There's nothing in this book like that, except for at the very end. So I think that this, I think that this is the beginning of some sort of a thaw. Hopefully, I think that's the promise of the end of the book. Heidi, you said that you don't think that he's repented. You said that he hasn't learned anything. Do you, do you, would you say that that's the same thing as not changing? Yeah, I don't think, I'm coming around completely to Tim's point of view that this is just a book meant to be funny. So, I, I, there's no, yeah, I don't think that he, I don't, I, I guess I just don't see that. I, I, here's what I do agree with. I agree with you, Tim, that he has, a surprising, a surprisingly tender response to Myrna. Mm. Like he's happy to see her. He clearly has been, um, there's several like just childlike moments in this last section that give us a glimpse into his, um, like kind of the, the tender underbelly, right? Like you get like the story of the dog, Right, um, right. And, and, and your underbelly you might pants. be not the best phrase to use. I know. As soon as I said it, I Ignatius felt re- really regretted it. Yet bloated um, underbelly. Forgive me. <laughs> um, yeah, he's and and the story of him wetting his pants at school and that Im- the implication that he was molested at college or or had a relationship with this professor um, that to me seems clear. There's no other conclusion to come to about the yeah. professor. But um so I I mean we get even more glimpses than we'd have than we've had into him as in a state of innocence, which he has clearly left behind. Um so I 
and then when he sees Myrna, he responds to her in a surprisingly positive way. And that, to your point, I think is a change. I don't know if I think it's a hopeful chance because I think he's just as narcissistic at the end. Um, I think it's I think the what I took it from is that this whole time he's just been faking being mad at her when it was just a bad breakup and he wanted her back the whole time. Um, but they don't. To me, it's not positive enough to be hopeful. There's no kind of self-realization on his part. But I do agree with you completely that it's it's a surprise and it's a change and it indicates an actual attachment to this girl yeah. that he's been denying the whole time. That's more than just sexual. Right. In earlier episodes, when we closed the episode, you asked, you know, what were we looking forward to? And the thing that I kept looking forward to was his reunion or, or he and Myrna being in the same room. And what's funny is mm-hmm. I completely forgot about the close of this book from the first time that I read it. I completely forgot about Myrna coming home. The last thing that I remember is the party that he attends in an effort to kind of like galvanize the movement. The movement, yeah. That's the last Save thing the that world. I remember. I'm like, mm-hmm. I'm sure that's not how the book ended, but that's the last thing that I remember. <laughs> that's memorable. Um, so I finally got what I was looking for, Myrna, some sort of a reunion with Myrna, and it turned out well. I think it turned out well. A question that I have at the end of the book is, how do we interpret the epigraph? The very beginning of the book, we get this quote from Jonathan Swift, and the, the, I'll just read it because I'm curious what both of you think about this. When a true genius appears in the world, you may know him by this sign, that the dunces are all in confederacy against him. How do you read that? I I read that as ironic. Go on. As like a a bit of sense of humor on the part of the author. Ignatius J. Riley probably read Swift. If If we look at this as a syllogism, like if a true genius appears in the world, you may know him by this sign that the dunces are all confederacy against him. Thus, for someone to be a genius, all the dunces have to be in confederacy against him. So Ignatius probably read Swift and thinks himself a genius, but then the evidence of his genius has to be that everyone is against him. And so I read that as a bit of like irony through the, uh, like that helps us get into the, like, I don't think it's, I think it's, I don't think it's meant to be earnest on the part of John Kennedy too. I think it's meant to be like revelatory and also making fun a little bit of Ignatius as, yeah. m- as most of, but, but, but like the thing is, I think the book takes Ignatius pretty seriously. And I think that it looks at him. We talked about this a little bit last week. I think that the book takes seriously the foibles of Ignatius because, and that the humor is what allows it to be palatable. Um, so I don't agree that this book is just meant to be funny. Because I think he, I think Ignatius, I mean, John Kennedy Tool is making some serious points. Um, and what, are, what think, are those points? I mean, I, I've talked about how this is a book about people on Twitter. <laughs> um, I like that. He, I think that's and, true. And, and, and it's about, like, he, he believes... How did I put it last week, Heidi? He believes intuitively in something higher. But because, as Heidi put it, he doesn't have a chest, 
he has no capacity to live it out, explain it, participate in it, anything like that. And if you, if it wasn't funny, it would be so deeply tragic that the message or I'm using that word loosely, that the, that the sort of theme of that, that theme of the book would be completely unpalatable. And I think that John Kennedy tool had a very bleak, dark, precise or concise sense of humor. <laughs> and so it does, it does work. But I think like he believes, like, I think the book is suggesting that this worldview that John Kennedy, <laughs> sorry, I keep switching them, that Ignatius talks about all the time has merit. And the tragedy is that its primary espouser, its primary proponent of it has no ability to explain what it is, to live according to it, to promote it. And the only way he can approach that is through like fake movements and thinking of himself as a genius. So I think that, that the epigraph then sort of helps us understand this character a little bit more. Does that make sense? I was trying to swing it back around to the original question. I like, I like the idea that Ignatius J. Riley would know this quote and think it's true. It's sort of like, it ratifies his position by when the Confederacy of Dunces, in his mind, yeah. the Confederacy of Dunces all rally against him. Oh, he's, I must be on to something. Right? Yeah. Yeah. He, he, you know, he's the, he's the one, I, he's being crucified over, over what he believes in, you know, which is on the one hand online, every, right now everyone is feeling crucified over what they believe in. And also they're attacking other people for what they believe in. And in person, nobody would be the difference is that Ignatius is kind of the same in person as he would be online. (laughs) Although he wouldn't have to go out in person if he could get online. I agree with that. I do think that, that it is an examination of a man without a chest. And as you know, our friend Jessica Hooten Wilson says it's, it's essentially, I don't know if she uses the phrase, a cautionary tale, but she talks in, in, in writing about this book as a way of learning how not to read, right? Because Ignatius J. Riley, Because Ignatius reads, is so bad at reading. Right. Well, and to twist the C.S. Lewis idea of like, you, there once was a boy used his clearance scrub and he read all the wrong kinds of books. What we have here is a boy, much like used his clearance scrub in some ways, uh, who reads all the right kinds of books, but they do not form him to the good. And, and, and so there's this degeneration of his interaction with the outside world based upon the fact that he has taken these, he's taken these books in and he knows, he knows whatever he knows everything there is to know about the constellation of philosophy, except the most important thing, which is how to be made whole by philosophy, right? By the true search for wisdom. There's, and, and, and so that's a serious reflection that goes underneath the book. However, I, it's a reflection that it takes some effort to get there. The author doesn't do that for us. We have to kind of come up with that on our own. Like, I don't think the book has enough of a narrative trajectory to get us there without a person with a chest reading the book. That's why I'm like, at the end, I was like, well, well maybe you, this is just a comedy who's book. Who's reading this book and thinking that Ignatius J. Riley is anything less Nobody, similar. nobody. But there's the fact that there's no, by the end of the book, 
the the fact that by the end of the book there's no internal or interior movement on the part of any character with the possible exception of his mother everything is external in the story nobody has a kind of movement of the heart towards any kind of genuine repentance or growth except i think his mom does and so that might be enough but the fact that we get there by the time i ended the book and closed it i was kind of like well maybe this is Maybe this is a book that is satirical, but it is only satirical. It may not have a chest. Maybe it's just a funny book about a guy who's a hypocrite. Is that what Tim, you're nodding? Yeah, that's the direction that I'm, I lean in. So I think the thing that's, the kind of wild card in the interpretation is his medievalism, right? Um, so it's, it's really tempting. And I think it's, it's plausible. It's more than just tempting. I think it's plausible that there's something about his worldview that we're meant to take really seriously, because it is such a contrast with the kind of like a daily existence in New Orleans that he kind of muddles through. But part of me thinks Ignatius J. Riley could just as easy, easily be a Renaissance scholar or a, like, a, a Greek aficionado, you know, an aficionado of ancient Greece my thinking now is that Ignatius J. Riley was so insecure that he found, he kind of like drummed up a worldview that positioned him to be in contrast with the rest of the world. Nobody can understand me. I'm a medievalist. I think the world needs more geometry and theology. No one can get me. I'm just one of a kind, sui generis. You know, I'm kind of like beyond the reckoning of the modern world. But it could have just as easily been a whole host of other worldviews. You know what I mean? Like, so I think it's, it's his insecurity drives his adoption of some esoteric yeah, view of the world. And I think what, what makes the kind of the challenge of understanding the book is that we all know that the medieval view of the world is intricate, profound, and compelling. And so I I just think that we might put too much weight on it for that reason, because we're familiar enough with medievalism to take it seriously. But I I don't know that... I don't know that the book does that. The counterproposal would be, well, John Kennedy Toole was a medievalist. He understood yeah. the medieval view really well. And so he is kind of um, buttressing Ignatius J. Riley with his own viewpoint. And I just don't know that that aspect of John Kennedy Toole's biography is enough to make me say, yeah, some profound ulterior kind of subterranean critique is going on. I just, I don't think so. So having read quite a, like I read the bi- the biography about John Kennedy tool and 
I think it could be just be a flaw of the book that as an, as an artifact, like a, an individual artifact that you need to know a lot about the author to make it uh, coherent. But I absolutely believe that he is making a statement like he, that, he, that this is on the one hand, a confessional, like he's working out some things about himself. I think he sees, I, I truly believe that he, this is a book where he's like working out a there, but for the grace of God, go I kind of scenario. Hmm. And also that he believed in quite a bit of the value of the medieval worldview. So just to use the word that the book mm-hmm. uses, but I do, th- but I also could say like, I think that makes the book compelling when you know it, but that you have to know it to get the worth of the book it could be a flaw of the book and might be a fact might be a result of it not being able to be edited properly because he died and things like that. Yeah. Can you so, expand on that? Because I didn't catch that at all. I would like to know what it was that he was trying to do so that I can kind of, you know, maybe evaluate whether or not I either I missed something or whether I think it's not there. Is that, do you think that's a, is that a fair question? I don't know. What do you mean? What did I, I need. Cause you said you need, cause I don't know what you're talking about. Like when you say I read his biography and so I understand what he was getting at. I don't, I know some of his biography, but only what we've talked about on the show. And so I'm wondering if I, like if Tim and I knew that, what, what we I might mean, be able to be like, oh, we just missed it. Or right. yeah, you're right. That is kind of a flaw. It's not in the book. Well, what I mean is that a lot of the flaws that Ignatius has are things that John Kennedy Toole battled against or right. judged or critiqued. And so he's working that those things out through the therapy of writing a book, mm-hmm. perhaps you could say. Right. Um, but I, I mean, I think that all the stuff we've been talking about, about, you, you know, the... I think he believed that the modern life was empty that, um, or at least he, he was constantly battling with the, the idea that the things that he studied had more to offer ma- mankind than the world that he was living in. And so you're, you're bad. You know, how do you not, how does that not become a dissonance for you? Right. Mm-hmm. The everyday that you have around you seems as if it can't live up to the thing that you believe in. So for people who are, for example, into classical education or I was going to say, I feel that all the time, believe in the early church, you know, the values of the early church or whatever it is to some degree, every person on earth is feeling that sort of a dissonance. And so he's working that out in a very particular way because he believes, you know, in the, like he, he was real enthusiast for the works that he was studying. Do you feel like, like, David, do you feel like in reading the book, do you get that the author valued what Ignatius J. Riley was offering? I, yes. I, okay. think that, I, I think the problem is, I think that the book values what Ignatius believes has value, but the tragedy of it is that, he, that, that Ignatius is the wrong person to present it to those people. So no one else can ever see it because he's ruining it for them. Right. So what this, is the thing that the book values I, I mean, about I'm his medievalism? Like, you know. About his medievalism? The book itself. Because I couldn't find, like to Tim's point, I couldn't find anything in the book that actually upheld theology and geometry, which I believe in deeply. And I think that's, that's where I'm, I was wrestling with it. What's like, if he's, if he's presenting a cautionary tale, I'm missing it because I don't see a single thing interior to the book that actually 
upholds and celebrates the thing Ignatius J. Riley is offering or claiming to uphold. I kind of thought at the end there would be something that was like, oh, this is what he means by theology and geometry. Here's a little, you know, here's some little nugget that could make the reader long for it. Well, Ignatius can't do that, though. And maybe, and that's the point? Yeah, I think so. Mm-hmm. Like, I, and I think, I do think that had he been able to revise and edit it, that might have been something yeah. where it was like, okay, let's focus, let's like give some models. Sure. So that's why I think this book has its, has its flaws, but it's compelling because it's offering a problem. Like I read, I actually read this book as a very funny tragedy mm-hmm. um, because it's saying there is this thing of value that would help this world we live in, but we can't explain it Hmm. we can't it can't like we can't make it function here um we have given it no like there's nowhere for it to to plant to flourish and the one and the person so often the people who most espouse these things are buffoons and i think that he ran into a lot of people who were like they kept talking about the things that he valued and you look at them and you're like uh maybe let's not make this person the representative of this thing that we believe in which of course we see that online all the time too right right <laughs> like if you're a conservative right now i'm, I'm going to go there then there's a lot of people out there who are the face of conservatism that you're like this is uh, not the conservatism that i believe in and likewise right. if you are a certain kind of liberal there's a version of liberalism that is very popular in the public sphere right now too that you're like that's not the version that i came to believe in when I was 20 right. or whatever. It's both right. sides. Um, I, I think, I think it's a very, I think it's flawed because the book is also that way the world works right now. But I think it's flawed because it's because it doesn't, it doesn't offer a lot of the models, but I just think what he's doing, what he's attempting to do is compelling and complex. Mm-hmm. I said last week, I think this is probably not a great book. It's just, a, it's a very compelling book. To mm-hmm. me. Yeah. Um, so one book I think that actually does that thing you're talking about incredibly well for for our listeners to contrast or to compare and contrast um, is not funny, but I think it does exactly what you're saying. And that is Lewis's That Hideous Strength. And there's, boy, is that book not funny. <laughs> it's not funny, but it does that. It presents medievalism in a way that's utterly unpalatable to moderns. And then it gives it to us through the book and says, what are you going to do with this? And the readers either balk at it or are like kind of drawn to it. And, and I'll give you one, one example among many in the book. Uh, there's a point in which Merlin, who is like the real Merlin from the Arthurian legend uh, comes back into the present day, which at the time is 1940s England, I think 1940s, um, and says to a female character that she, he announces to all of the assembled company that this character, female character named Jane should be burned at the stake as a witch because she's taking birth control. And he, he, he makes this argument that she is, Uh, she has failed to produce a child because she was taking birth control that, and that if she hadn't been on birth control, this child that she would have born would have been a meaningful kind of savior within his generation. But because she was taking birth control, she was essentially a witch. She's, 
she's messing with or uh, what the medievals would have called because they believed in magic, but uh, in a different way than we do. Like that she said she was she's using black magic. And that's what birth control is, right? And that, I think, is an example of how unpalatable medievalism is to the modern mind. And, and, and so we might think it's like so sweet and, oh, knights jousting and courtly love. And this is so adorable. And can't we go back to a more innocent time? And when you look at Merlin in that hideous strength, you're forced to say, do I want this or not? Right? Is birth control black magic? Oh, what a wicked Merlin. Or, oh, that's kind of interesting. I wonder how the medievals thought about the world, right? That's, I can kind of understand the idea of this being black magic. And so that, I think, is an example of what you're describing succeeds in a novel. And I kind of ended the novel, wait, I was waiting for that the whole time. I was waiting mm. for that Merlin moment. Mm. And, I, and I was, and the, the book ended, and I'm like, I, did I miss it or was it not there? Heidi, in that hideous strength, are we? I've I've never read that book. I've only read the first of the trilogy. Are we meant to take Merlin's point of view as like a challenge to the modern point of view on on birth control or just broadly, or is it meant to be like an overreaching of the modern world? How, how do you well, know how Lewis, Lewis wanted us to take that? I, I do, but I, 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 one of the things he was doing was letting us know, letting moderns know you don't really get the medievals. You might think you do, but what it is is completely unpalatable to modernity. Mm-hmm. Like you're going to either be intrigued by it and come around to it, or you're going to hate it and reject it and resist it. But he offered us a character in Merlin who was totally medieval, as Mm -hmm. medieval as, as, as Lewis could get to. Um, And so I, I, I think one of the things he's doing among many in that novel is to say, don't idealize the medievals, which is something you keep saying in reading this book. And you've said that over and over again, don't idealize them. Or you may not have used that mm-hmm. word, but that's your right, caution, right? right? Yeah. And that's fair. And what Lewis is doing is saying, hey guys, if you're idealizing them, you need to know this is what you're in for. And I do know where he lands on it, but the reader, he doesn't, he risks that with the reader. The reader I might see. end up closing the novel and being like, I do not want that. That is not what I yeah. want. Um, and Lewis and, and would in turn say, well, you at least know what you're refusing. Yes. Yeah. It's not an idealized version of it. Right. Um, right. You're not going to medieval times and having like a turkey leg and watching a fake joust, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, the, but in this novel, I never really got that Merlin moment. And it could be because I'm failing to read it properly. <laughs> well, could it be that the medieval... Dis- the specific thing is even for example, like what we talked about last week with the, uh, the humors and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Like Ignatius himself is the, is the medieval model. <laughs> like he, of the vices. Yeah. 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 Of the vices of it. And maybe, I, I mean, what is it that Walker Percy calls him in the introduction that, some oh it's it's like a profane Thomas Aquinas or something like that. Yeah, so yeah, it's yeah. um I can't remember the exact word, the exact adjective, but you see it. It it is, but I think to Tim's point, when I kind of closed the book thinking, well, 
maybe I like this novel better if it's just meant to be funny because I, um, I wanted so much to have some moment in the novel, but from anybody, it didn't need to be from Ignatius J. Riley. In fact, I felt like it probably would have fallen flat if he'd had a moment of repentance, but I wanted something from somebody that indicated some kind of redemptive movement, like literally anything. I'm like grasping at straws by the end. So I want to talk about that in a second, but first the light, the way Tim is sitting with his black shirt and the white background, the way he's holding his mic, it's like, I mean, like I'm getting a little Paul Newman vibe here. I was totally. going to say, say Whistler's mother. Paul, <laughs> <laughs> Dude, Paul Newman, go with Paul Newman on the, in this yeah, case. Yeah, I'll, I'll go with Paul Newman. I'll take Paul Newman. Probably my favorite actor of all time, side note. Oh, um, wow, that is quite a compliment. It though. is. Thank you. But also just like, so handsome. Yeah, oh my so, gosh, Paul um, Newman and Robert Redford. It's like one of those guys. Yeah, exactly. So Tim is sitting there and like the light, the way the light, it's a, the light has moved on, but the way the light was on him, it's like, I got to let Tim talk. <laughs> like it's time well, for an time for a, for a Tim uh, uh, monologue. I was thinking back, Heidi, I just want to back up and say, this is so this is so helpful. This is such a great discussion for me because I feel like, yeah, we're all kind of trying to get at the kind of discomfort that comes with ending this novel. And I think the discomfort for me is I'm, I'm convinced that the text is meant to be funny. The question is how much weight to put on the subtext. It's like a subtext text question, question, right? And I think, Heidi, maybe two or three episodes ago, you and I were disagreeing about like, what is the point of this book? And I was putting forward, it's just, it's meant to be funny because I think the, the text says that over and over and over, like every page is an attempt to make us laugh through the hijinks of the secondary characters or through Ignatius J. Riley. And it sounds like we probably agree about that now, but I think what we were disagreeing about two or three episodes ago was how seriously do we take the subtext? And we've gotten to the end of the book and the questions about the subtext, meaning like how, and for me that is, how seriously are we to take Ignatius J. Riley's like worldview. It's interesting. Um, that remains unresolved. We're sitting here and that's what we're trying to resolve. And it's really a difficult thing to resolve. Do you, do you think it's possible that the, so there we go, the text and the subtext, this book has become, it has its cult following because of the text. Yeah. But with some of the implications of subtext. So this is a book that's very funny and except to certain people, very enjoyable to read and, or maybe I should say, and for certain people, very enjoyable to read, then you have, but it also seems to be about important stuff. Mm-hmm. And it seems it's literary. It is literary in the sense that it's, it is consumed with literary stuff, like in the subtext. Right. But oh, where the, subte- the subtext has a little bit of incompletion about it. Mm-hmm. And that's where like the, the fact that he died and there wasn't a real revision process. And like, he didn't have people saying, let's tweak this. Let's focus in on this. Let's refine this. It feels like the subtext is not, it's there, but not precise. Exactly. Exactly. It's and that's just what makes it difficult. Hewn. Yeah. 
And so we can all have these different readings on it because well he, did, he wasn't able to refine the subtext that, yeah. he, that he wanted. I That makes so much sense to me, David. So much sense to me. And so I think what we're left with, and this is a criticism, I think, of the book along the same lines of the criticism that you guys are making. I think what happened was John Kennedy Toole wrote this book and he had this idea. Like maybe it was something like this. This is, this is I am probably breaking Close Reads rules by making this hypothesis because we don't like to talk about the authors. We like to talk about the books, right? And I think that's like something that book. we- It's hard with this book, isn't it? It's hard. So here's me kind of breaking one of our rules. I think John Kennedy Toole was like, you know what? I'm going to write a book. It's going to be funny. And, but below the surface of that humor is going to be this attempt to kind of like put into conflict the medieval world, specifically Boethius. And I'm going to put that in juxtaposition with the modern world. Oh, by the way, my main character, who's going to lead the comic, you know, foray, is going to be a Falstaff kind of character. He's going to be big. He's going to be bloated. He's going to be brazen. Oh, yeah. He's also going to be a narcissist. And all of that sounds good, except that character ran away with it, like ran away with the book. He put the book on his back and he carried the whole thing away, did Ignatius J. Riley. Because when you think about this book, I bet you, Heidi, in two years, when you think about this book and, and Scott says, what was that book about again? You'd say, it's about Ignatius J. Riley. It's about the hot dog stand. Going yeah, it's about down the hot dog stand. Alley. It's about like, right. It's not about <laughs> the conflict of medievalism or Boethius with the modern world. It's about a narcissistic Falstaffian clown. That's what it's about. Do you think that literary theory here that I would like to posit to you that a lot of the time what revision is doing is getting the self out of the story. Yes. So a lot of yes. the time what we're doing yeah. when we're writing is we're putting a lot of stuff out there. We're telling the story we want to tell. And a lot of the times that's that telling is full of ourselves, whether it's the people we know, the things we are consumed with, the points we want to make. And a big part of revision is getting rid of all the excess self. Yes. That, that the authors in there, whether that's the, the words you initially thought were right or the ideas that you're consumed with, but don't necessarily present well in the, in this text. And so I think, I think you're right, Tim. And so, you know, again, I'm just going back to my own theory that, that there's a sense in which he was not able to eliminate himself out of it enough for things to stand up on their own and make the book truly good, like truly great because he died and didn't, they didn't get the work done in the revision. I, I think that's exactly right, David. The other, the, the only caveat that I would give would be, I think sometimes, and I think Anna Karenina is a case in point, the vision of the self within the pages of the book for Tolstoy as Levin works so well because the world kind of conforms to the wishes of Tolstoy as himself in the, in, in the book, if that makes sense. Yeah. I didn't say that terribly clearly, but yeah, I think most, I think maybe lesser authors, the problem is too much self, but in the hands of someone like Tolstoy, he is so plainly to me, 
Levin, the character of Levin, that what he needed to do in the revision process was let himself be Levin in the book and just make sure that the rest of the world that he is creating kind of conforms to the inner needs, the inner drives, the inner hopes of that main autobiographical character. Yeah, I I like that a lot. I also I also think what you said about subtext is super helpful, super helpful to me. What you said about how it's just kind of imprecise because I don't I don't need I don't feel like I need all the answers. I don't need a morality tale from any kind of novel. I don't need like a neat little bow at the end. I I love Hemingway, right? And so when you read Hemingway, you're like, the subtext is questions about the meaning of life, mm-hmm. right? It's not conclusions, it's questions. So I don't need a conclusion, but I kind of need a question to wrestle with. And as I was reading this novel, I, I felt like I I got, there's so, it's so tawdry and sorted and there's no counterpoint for it ever in the novel. Mm-hmm. And that might be personal preference for me, but I kept, even Walker Percy, who writes about tawdry sorted characters, always has a counterpoint yeah. within his novels. And this is, there was none yeah, that no I could foil. find. Right. Yeah, for- and so like, and another example from Tolstoy in reading Anna Karenina is you have this downward trajectory of Anna, which right. almost would be unbearable without an upward trajectory with Levin and Kitty, right? And yeah. so they there's the counterpoint. There's a there's a harmony there that's created within the world of the novel, um, so that the the Levin story would be far too sappy, happy for a, for without. Anna and Anna would just be nearly emotionally unbearable without Levin. And, and, and so a a novelist works those kind of counterpoints into the novel. And, and so throughout this novel, I was like, I will hang in there till the end and surely there will be a counterpoint. And I kind of got there and was like, well, maybe this was just a comedy novel then. Right. So, but what you said about honing in on the precision, like clarifying that subtext and what David said about revisions, like surely an editor would have said, hey, we, you know, it might be helpful if you work this in, it might be more successful. Um, And there's people who love it. I can hear Sean Johnson, our friend Sean Johnson, who loves this novel. Like I can hear him yelling at me right now (laughs) from his kitchen as he's making some kind of delicious food because he's a chef and being like, you're totally wrong about this novel. Well, Sean, come on the Q&A. Right. And that's fair. He's probably right. What I am saying is it was disharmonious to me throughout the whole thing. And I kept waiting for some kind of counterpoint to harmonize the tawdry nature of the novel. I'm so with you, Heidi. I mean, I I got to the end and I thought this book is a, if I want a book to make me laugh, I think this is like one of the first books that I pick up. It's one of the first books that I recommend. If I want a book to kind of, um, delve into something deeper. I think this book starts and doesn't complete the job. So I I kind of think we might be in the same place about this book. I actually, and and I feel that way too, but I think what I like about it for me personally, not like, like if I'm just inter inter like putting myself, if I'm just like talking about the experience I have reading this book, not 
this is the book as a text. I like that in doing that, it gives me a lot to think about. Hmm. That's why I keep That's saying fair. it's compelling for me, even though I recognize there are flaws about it. Yeah. I imagine you're kind of the same way, Tim. Yeah, 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 for sure. So I want to ask one question before we go, because we got to wrap this up. And then of course, we'll do our Q&A next week. So if you have questions, be sure to, we'll post them on the, Heidi, can you be in charge of the Facebook thread? Yeah, I'm on it. So Heidi's going to post, start a thread on Facebook. If you have questions, put them there. You can also email them to me at david at goldberrybooks.com. We've been talking about Anna Karenina. So just want to remind you that if you want to join our Patreon, you can listen to our bonus episodes on Anna Karenina as well. Lots of new stuff coming, including in January. We'll have an episode on some short stories, maybe even do that live. Okay, here's my final question for you guys. We've been talking about the idea of books, um, you know, like it doesn't seem to have a redemptive ending or it doesn't seem to have a suggestion that there's a well, clear change. Maybe, Maybe there's a change. Maybe he grows in some way. Is that something that you find yourselves, to what degree do you find yourselves being unsatisfied when that is true of books? So is that something that like, Heidi, you're unsatisfied in this book because of the particularities of this book? Or you, if you don't get that in most books, you're going to be unsatisfied? Because you were kind of equating, it seemed to me earlier in the in podcast, satisfaction or being satisfied with an ending and redemption change growth, whatever, whatever word you want to use. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think a novel needs to end well to be a good book. Like I, I just think that, but well, what do you mean it has to end? Well? Yeah. Yeah. And so then the natural next question is what does it mean to end well? So, you know, there's the traditional answer. It, sh- it ought to be surprising, but at the same time you think to yourself, there's no other way that this could have ended. And those books like that are great. I think that that's, I don't mind an unfinished ending like this at all. I think it's because it's consistent. It's consistent with the character of Ignatius J. Riley. I think it would have been profoundly unsatisfying if he had woken up and had like a conversion experience and been like, I'm going to be a better man. Like there would have, that would have been so unsatisfying because there's, that would have come out of nowhere and be contrived. Right. So I do think that, whether or not the ending is satisfying isn't necessarily a plot device uh, as much as it is a consistency of yeah. narrative and voice right. and how the book ends. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I think a lot about should, the text should tell you how the text should end rather than do I have to have a redemptive ending? Well, not if you have to bolt a redemptive ending onto a book that's not setting itself up to be a redemptive tale. Right. Right. Heidi, something like that. I, absolutely. And I would, st- I would also argue when I say redemptive, which is a religious word, but I don't mean it religiously. Yeah. I, there's plenty of novels that I, I think have very redemptive endings, like all the pretty horses that are, I don't think traditionally Christian or moral, you know, morality tale kind of endings. I'm not, Jonathan Franzen's say, freedom, Jonathan Franzen's yes. freedom. It's like a, a I think yes. a great redemptive story. Yeah. No um, religious right. interest at all. I'm not looking for oh, a religious or moral ending as much as when, when I say redemptive, I mean some kind of, usually what I mean by that is some kind of internal movement on the part of a character towards growth that right. is, um, that's meaningful and consistent with the story. I think that, um, uh, that the sun also rises has a redemptive ending, even though I do not believe that it's, it's absolutely not moral or so, Christian. Like you do so, want the characters to be moving towards growth for it to be satisfying. I, I think most, yes. 
And I, I do, I, I think for me, I think the most satisfying moment in this book is when his mother says, when Mrs. Riley says to him, you learned everything, Ignatius, except how to be a human being. Mm. That's the most satisfying moment of this whole novel for me. And that's then, not, that's, yeah. that's not religious. That's not, you know, it's not like tying a neat little bow, mm-hmm. um, but it's somebody telling the truth because they had some kind of internal movement yeah. from toward a trajectory of growth or justice or truth or love or sacrifice or courage or something um, that, that, that moves the character towards growth or truth or something like that. And that doesn't have to be on Christian terms, um, but it, yeah. So that, that to me was a very satisfying yeah. moment. I'm like, finally, somebody said it, even though he couldn't hear it, it, it was satisfying to have it said somewhere in the novel. Mm. Not just you're crazy or you're bad or I don't like you, but you don't know how to be a human being. Mm-hmm. Tim, when you think of endings, what do you think of? What Heidi just described. I think that it has to be germane to the characters and plot that have been set up in the story. I mean, I think Heidi's going to agree with this. I can imagine a very... I can imagine an ending in which the main character, especially an anti-hero, gets his, her just desserts. You know, like like Macbeth yeah. being beheaded is very satisfying. And that's the most satisfying part of the play. It's not the restoration of the rightful heir. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, okay, that's great. But the real thing that's satisfying is Macbeth who has just turned into this black-souled villain, finally getting his just desserts after like handing out unjust bloodshed to everybody else. So you're excited for uh, Coen Brothers Macbeth, by the way. I'm really excited about that. It looks that. great. Yeah, I'm really excited about that. What about Almost you, David? As oh, excited as um, Paul Thomas Anderson's new movie, but that oh my is gosh. off topic. Oh my gosh! Have you, you haven't seen it though, right, David? No, okay. but like Paul Thomas Anderson is my favorite filmmaker. Right. Oh my gosh. And this new movie, the reviews on it are incredible and it, it couldn't be more up my alley. Really? So we can talk about that later. Okay. Can I just do one more thing that's like totally off topic? Do you know, like we talk about Terrence Malick, the filmmaker here. Do you know what his new movie is going to be about? The life Malick's? of Christ. He's doing a life oh, of Christ. I did not know that. Yes. That's interesting. Really Interesting. Like That's, so interesting uh, that I'm talking in an elevated voice. I know, I was going to say, it's like continued, but yeah. yeah. I'm like not letting it go. Yeah. <laughs> That's how he's interesting. He's outside of himself right now. <laughs> um, well, we should. But I, re- I do, I know, but don't ask questions you're interested in if you're not willing to answer. So if you, like, what do you think about the ending? Larry thing? King does that all the time. I know, but <laughs> I, I don't want to let you do that. Because I know you actually care about this question a lot. What's the question? What the ending. Oh, what endings? What makes a good ending or satisfying ending? Well, yeah. So from like, to me, those are two different things I think about all the time. Like satisfaction is a very per- personal thing. It feels to me and good and satisfying aren't always the same. I'm always kind of wrestling with that. Like, but for me, the, there's three questions that I tend to ask 
is it true to the book? We've talked about that a lot. Like, is the ending consistent with what the book has said it is, that it is for however many pages previously? If it's not, then it better have a good reason and it's going to be telling us something new about itself. Sometimes that's cool, but like, don't do it on accident. <laughs> um, don't, do, don't do that because you're incompetent. Is it true to reality? Like, would, is this how people or the world actually works? Like if the book all of a sudden stops being true to reality, or at least the world of the book, which those two things go hand in hand then with my other comment, then like, that's not, that's not good. The, you, you tell like, don't reinvent the way the universe works. Cause you don't have that power. Um, even in science fiction, like you're telling us or fantasy, there's like got to be a consistency to the world. Um, and then the big thing for me is, does it leave me wanting more? Like that's just, that's a personal thing but I don't, I don't like when things are wrapped up neatly. I want there to be questions. I want it to be great. I want to spend a lot of time wondering what happened to these characters or what's next for these characters is maybe the better way of putting it. And that's just, that's a totally personal thing. Like that's one of the reasons why I don't like certain, there's just certain kinds of books that I don't have a personal, a lot of affection for because I don't think about them again. You know, I want, I want it to leave me, wanting to spend more time with the characters because I want to know, well, what's this character like in two years? And from that perspective, I, this book does leave me wanting more, although I feel like it's about 50 pages too long. And so by the time I get to the end of it, I'm like, I'm good. Yeah. So I'm ready for it to end. But those are the things that I tend to tend to think about. Not unlike Christmas day. Does it leave me wanting more? Is it true to itself? <laughs> consistent with reality is my wearing yeah. matching pajamas mm -hmm. exactly mm -hmm. have we finished i'm up it's christmas carol yet have we made the pepperoni disc candy cane we also do a snowman pizza the the oh my gosh the um <laughs> the um the step back from the castle candy cane pizza and the jesus in a blanket those were i will say i was a little bit like huh okay <laughs> Like, huh, okay, blanket? huh, okay, that's a great tradition. Remember, mm. we did start these traditions when my kids were, oh. like, tiny, and we just keep doing them. So, like, a so two-year-old and a four-year-old and a six-year-old doing does it. Does that make it just, better like, or worse? I was well, just going to ask the exact same question. <laughs> right. It didn't just spring out of my we're adulthood. We're just teasing. We're just teasing, Heidi. Well, we're I'm proud of this. I, I look forward to this every year. This is just us being like brotherly Guys, figures right that's now. That's exactly <laughs> right. Right. That's right. But if you were at my house for Christmas, you'd get matching pajamas and you'd have to participate. So Tim, if you ever are like, I need somewhere to go for Christmas, you're welcome to come to my house. <laughs> <laughs> well, we will have an episode next week for Christmas. Um, and then of course, like I said, we're going to do our end of the year uh, episodes. We're going to talk about our end of the year reading, which I think we all need to finish up some books so we can have that, have that conversation. Heidi and Heidi just gave me a look like, yeah, yes. we need to like, I need to finish up some books. Yes. Well, either of you want to add anything else on a Confederacy of Dunces before we do our Q and A episode. Mm -hmm. All right, cool. Well, I'm going to go to my kids play. They're doing a 12th night. So I've got to go uh, watch that. And I think there's a Virginia reel involved in there somewhere in the, in the evening. So Sounds amazing. Have a great time. <laughs> All right. Well, for Heidi White and for Tim McIntosh, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. And until next time, happy reading. Happy reading.